is now. Hello and welcome to my final digital talk for this year. Um, it is part of a series of conversations on the presidential election in the United States and its outcome. Um, and is possible thanks to the support of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund, which promotes collaboration and exchange between Austrian and American think tanks, non-governmental organizations, and uh, universities. I have a very, very special guest today, uh, Andrew Michter. He holds a PhD in international relations from the John Hopkins University, and his areas of expertise uh, is uh, very, very rich. Uh, he covers uh, topics of international security, of NATO and European politics and security with a special focus on Central Europe and the Baltic states. And he's also currently the Dean of the College of International and Security uh, Studies at the George C. Marshall uh, European Center for Security Studies. Welcome, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. And before we continue, uh, I'd like to say that, of course, I am speaking here in my private capacity as an analyst and a scholar, and my views should not be taken to represent the official policy or position of the Marshall Center, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So I'm speaking here as a private analyst of international affairs. Thank you. Which also means that we can freely and openly discuss a broad spectrum of questions uh, related to the European and American uh, security policy. And uh, it is, uh, you will not be uh, surprised uh, to hear my first question, which is very much related to the US uh, foreign security policy. Now, I would like to ask you uh, directly what is your view? What is your opinion? Um, where is actually the US foreign security policy headed under Joe Biden starting with 2021? Yeah, I mean, this is an excellent question. Of course, it's early on. We're still watching the team that's being put together. Uh, some of those uh, who are coming on board, assuming that they will be confirmed for those positions that need uh, to be confirmed uh, by Congress. Uh, by the Senate, that these uh, will be to a large extent what we can call liberal internationalists in their outlook. Uh, some of them uh, previously served in the Obama administrations or have been working with the, with the Clintons, uh, with Hillary Clinton in particular. Uh, so in terms of the kind of value set, uh, I think it's going to be a different uh, methodology, if you will. Uh, the Trump administration has been more conservative nationalist uh, both, by the way, liberal internationalists and conservative nationalists. These are two very well-established strand, strands in U.S. foreign and security policy. Um, so uh, in a nutshell, I think the, the approach to, to how you actually uh, make foreign policy will likely have a different flavor to it. What is not going to change is the problem set. Um, the, I use the comparison to the Obama administration. Both Obama administrations took place at the time when we were still in, in a unipolar moment, when unipolarity was still very much in full view, this kind of post-Cold War, uh, the first uh, two decades, if you will, and, and slightly beyond, 
we're now uh, not in that environment. The United States is facing uh, two near peer competitors when it comes to military affairs. Uh, and the change that you saw in the Trump administration with the 2017 national security strategy and then the 2018 national defense strategy, the national security strategy has been released. National defense strategy, Secretary Mattis at the time released about 12 pages of the unclassified piece that clearly states that we're back in a great power competition environment. Uh, and of course, China is also a near peer competitor increasingly in economic terms. So the incoming administration, uh, the Biden administration will have to address these issues, which means the problem set is not going away. Uh, how you seek to uh, respond to these challenges may, dif may differ, but there are certain absolutes of capacity, as I call it. Um, remember that the U.S. is coming off of about two decades of essentially constant engagement on warfare in a number of theaters that are not directly related to these two principal peer competitors or near peer competitors. Uh, so um, in terms of our capabilities, the costs of, of those campaigns, how they restructured the U.S. military, all of this will transition, that, that problem set will transition from the uh, Trump administration to the Biden administration, and they will have to deal with it. So you've addressed a broad spectrum of issues already, and we are going to unpack all of them in the next uh, 60 minutes. But first and foremost, since uh, the U US uh, policy, be it security or defense one, will be certainly challenged in the next uh, four years, five years, and I would say that the whole decade, uh, the United States will need strong allies and partners. Now, there is no secret that on this side of the Atlantic um, Ocean, uh, the European continent has been very much hoping for exactly this presidential election outcome. And Joe Biden will have a lot of uh, friends. A lot of uh, European capitals are already preparing for first uh, visits, uh, hopefully in the next uh, year. But we also know that there will be a change in the leadership uh, first starting with Germany next year, and then France will also witness a presidential election in 2022. Now, I would like to start with a very sensitive question about the transatlantic relations, because before we start with the problems and with the global challenges, uh, we need uh, to settle the transatlantic relation uh, so what is your take on that? Uh, how will Joe Biden and his administration approach this issue? There will be certainly a lot, a lot to do in that field in the months to come. Yeah, uh, clearly uh, alliances, they used to be, they had been historically, and they will be even more so, I would argue, essential enablers of U.S. national security and foreign policy. Um, we are looking, uh, you know, I mentioned already before that uh, for the United States, the number one priority going forward is going to be China. Uh, China is increasingly not just a power in Asia, it is also a power in Europe. It's an Asian power that is now a power in Europe. And I bring this up because we're talking about the European dimension uh, in this relationship and the ability to build strong alliances, to maintain strong alliances uh, will be absolutely critical going forward for, for a variety of reasons. You know, if you, 
if you compare the current situation to where we were in, in the Cold War, uh, the U.S. never looked at China uh, as a near-peer competitor or even a global power. China was a regional player, not even a regional hegemon at that time. Uh, the Soviet Union, on the other hand, was a peer competitor in the military sphere, but uh, never at any point in the economic realm. So uh, we were much more focused on this economic, on this military dimension when it came to the Soviet Union, but didn't worry that much about the economic dimension. Um, what happened at the end of the Cold War, and that's going to be a huge challenge for the Biden administration, uh, in effect, as a result of the implosion of the Soviet Union, unipolarity and all of that, uh, most of the European allies have effectively disarmed. The complaint that you had heard from the Trump administration was actually a complaint I've heard uh, virtually throughout the last three decades uh, from a number of secretaries of defense. I remember being at NDU when the new strategic concept was being debated and Secretary Gates uh, had some very strong words to deliver about the need to resource defense in Europe. Uh, same with Secretary Carter. Secretary Ash Carter was also saying you know, it is simply unsustainable that the U.S. should carry in the numbers we can quibble about 60, 70 percent of, of the total cost of European defense. Uh, this is no longer a conversation about burden sharing. And I think that's going to be very important for the Biden administration and I think for the European allies and friends to understand. Uh, during the Cold War, we were structured for two major military conflicts, one in Europe, one in Asia and a smaller uh, operation on top of that. Uh, we are now structured, if you look at, at our resources, we're structured for one major military campaign, you know, principal theater and one smaller uh, area. Um, I suspect that the Biden administration will appeal very strongly to the Europeans uh, to pick up the burden of maintaining credible deterrence in Europe, especially if we have any sort of uh, crisis developing in the Indo-Pacific, um, the attention of the United States shifting in that direction if the Europeans are not properly resourced to maintain deterrence and if need be uh, defend, they will create a very unstable situation and a very opportunistic situation uh, for the Russians to try rev to revise, uh, you know, blackmail, push or whatever. Uh, and we're all losers in the process. And alliances are critical not just in Europe, they're also critical in Asia. Europe has a very structured, highly bureaucratized system of alliances. Asia does not. Uh, Asia is a much more competitive environment in that sense. So there, and we can talk about it later, but there the U.S. will, will rely on, on the Troika plus India, that is, you know, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea as the kind of anchor points uh, for our space there. Um, the Europeans have responded uh, to the pressure from the Trump administration to increase defense spending. About, I, I remember, I think by the end of 2019 or 2018, it was about four, $43 billion additional spending and uh, generally, Secretary General Stoltenberg has been talking about going up to about 400 billion by 2024. Um, the big question will be, can Europe deliver this because of the COVID bill, because of the pressures that are beginning to build on the budgets? Um, my sense also will be that because the style of the Trump administration did not sit very well with a number of European leaders uh, to the point that you know some of them were arguing uh, that it was difficult for them to step up on some issues because of the matter of perceptions and political friction and whatnot. Um, we are now in a situation where I would say uh, we're out of excuses. I think uh, if the Europeans expect 
the more multilateral, more kind of traditional liberal internationalist administration, as the Biden administration is shaping itself up and presenting itself, then they would have to reciprocate uh, in the realm of real hard usable military capabilities. And I think that will be a key challenge going forward. And there are additionally two question marks uh, for us Europeans. The one is, of course, how we will settle the relation with uh, Great Britain um, post-Brexit. That means specifically in the field of security and defense policy. And then on the other side, um, you have uh, certainly followed the debate, the current debate uh, between French and German stakeholders regarding the a long-term vision about strategic sovereignty or strategic autonomy and the build-up of a European uh, pillar of uh, security and defense within NATO, but also on the old continent. So how do you see these current um, uh, debates knowing the global context and also the global power shift? I mean, do you think that this is going to be settled? Because we don't, in fact, we don't have the time uh, to waste on uh, further discussions for the years to come, we should actually start acting and moving forward on all these uh, challenges that you've, and you've named most of them. Felina, I agree 100% that the timelines that we used to have got compressed uh, before COVID and after COVID. Uh, we are, I mean, we know what a depression looks like. We know what a recession looks like. We've never lived through what I call a suppression of economic activity. I mean, in the U.S. case, we stopped a $23 trillion economy literally on a dime. And, and, and a number of European countries virtually across the continent have done the same thing. Uh, the consequences of this in terms of budgets, uh, you know, we increased defense spending during the Trump administration. Will that defense spending level be sustainable going forward? Just in the first tranche, we spent about six trillion of new borrowing on the relief package. If you look at our projected budget deficit and the actual budget deficit, we're projecting about uh, a trillion, we're at a trillion point one right now in just this year. So uh, the stresses on the system will be, will be absolutely, absolutely tremendous. And so what concerns me the most in this conversation is that talking about strategic autonomy at the time when we can actually realize the savings and yet generate the capabilities if we operate within the tested strategic system that we have in the alliance uh, that has been the, the guarantor of security, uh, the transatlantic alliance. Uh, I sometimes remind my European colleagues, uh, this is my third tour working in Europe. Uh, I've been here now on this one four years that NATO actually brought Europe decades, I mean, half a century of peace and stability, stability maybe not always, but peace during the Cold War, and then three decades of peace and, and relative stability afterwards. That's unprecedented in European history. Uh, one more reason why I'm against talking about uh, strategic autonomy, uh, there are various, uh, you know, schemes about European capabilities, European Army, PESCO, you know, CARD and all these, all these kinds of things. These capabilities have to come from somewhere. Uh, if you try to create a, 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 an autonomous capability, if you will, these units uh, are, do I understand it correctly, will no longer be part of the larger transatlantic military effort. Secondly, are those units really capable to provide for the level of security uh, for Europe that Europe 
absolutely needs. Uh, the critical question here is, of, of course, the strategic nuclear guarantee that the U.S. provides within NATO for the entire alliance. And the larger point is political. Um, strategic autonomy against whom? I mean, strategic autonomy in what sense? I always find these verbal gymnastics to be, to be a little distracting. And the larger question that I see is that Europe needs more unity on defense rather than uh, fracturing. We already have enough when it comes to security optics. One thing you remember from NATO that there was a sense of common, common threat perceptions. I mean, whether you were located in Germany, which was a frontline state, or in France, or in Britain, or, or even farther to the West, there was a sense that a direct military threat was a, a direct threat to the entire alliance. And, and there was a sense of, of certain consensus on how to respond. And we exercised this, you know, every year we had Reforger, we, we had all these kinds of things. I would submit to you that European security optics has become regionalized. Every time I'm in Tallinn or in Warsaw or in Bucharest, it's all about Russia. When I start traveling west and I come to Garmisch where I am or go to Berlin, it becomes much more bidirectional. The, the, the sense of urgency on Russia is there, but it's less uh, pronounced than in the countries that are on the flank. When, you got, when I go to France, it's all about the south. Most of my conversation there are about the south, the Mediterranean, Africa. Uh, and of course, the French are right that Europe's southern border is no longer on the Med, it's in the Sahel, it's deep into Africa, Africa's problems have become Europe's problems. And when I go, you know, all the way to Portugal, I say jokingly, I don't really know what we're supposed to be discussing in terms of prioritizing, prioritizing threats. And my point is that strategic autonomy and trying to disconnect some elements of European security, even if it's on a limited basis, I think will further undercut that sense of a shared threat perception and consensus. I was watching very closely the, the debate uh, of, the, of the reflection group, you know, the, the, uh, Dr. Mitchell and, and Thomas de Mazier. And, uh, you know, to me, the key task and key outcome of that was consensus on threats. You know, what can we agree on, and especially on China? Because I think on Russia, we can pretty much see eye to eye with some differences as you move across European geostrategic space. But on, on China, that is a, a truly difficult uh, item to put on the agenda and agree on the nature of the threat. Mm -hmm. And maybe just the final question that emerged out of uh, your elaboration on the issue, and that is uh, once again, of course, linked to Europe, since we Europeans are pretty much concerned with, uh, you know, with uh, shaping the agenda for the years to come, specifically now, that we know also the U.S. election outcome. And uh, that is because you mentioned regionalization, and I very much concur with your view on that matter, that uh, it also become quite obvious during the uh, Trump's administration that we have this issue of fragmentation within Europe when it comes to the issues of security and defense, and uh, that uh, Central and Eastern Europe uh, is uh, very much still uh, in, uh, you know, in its expectation as a region, um, united with, uh, with, with the U.S. Uh, foreign or security uh, policy issues and uh, matters. And on the other side, as you've out also outlined, we have uh, a pretty much different debate right now when it comes to sovereignty, autonomy, and so on, uh, at the European Union level and coming out from the French and the German uh, capitals. So my question to you is a very direct one. Do you expect that this fragmentation 
will continue um, no matter what kind of approach uh, Joe Biden and his administration will apply to, to Europe, considering these realities on the ground, uh, specifically when it comes to security guarantees, of course. I don't think the issues will go away. How they, how they will evolve going forward, I think, will, will depend on two factors. Uh, first, uh, how Germany will conceptualize its own relationship with the United States, its place in NATO, and most of all, its role as a military security provider. Uh, that's the first point. And the second point is to what extent the United States will be focusing on Europe as its uh, you know, at least number two priority and to what extent we are going to be pulled into the Gulf because uh, of the Chinese uh, aspect of that. I mean, the Chinese are getting most of their energy uh, from there. So um, what, what has changed in Europe already, I mean, with the departure of, of the United Kingdom, Europe has of its own weight become much more continental, if I may use that ex expression. Um, the Brits were always a, a kind of uh, third element within the NATO alliance and also within the EU that was always bringing a very different uh, set of assumptions and, and a very different uh, set of preferences to the debate. Uh, this is now a much more Germany-led Europe than before the, the uh, Brits uh, emerged from the European Union when they decided to opt for Brexit. It also means that a very significant portion of European military capabilities, if the Europeans were to entertain some sort of a notion of creating you know, an autonomous force, autonomous strategy, et cetera, et cetera, then that would require very significant investment from the largest players uh, into, into that kind of uh, an enterprise. The reason I'm skeptical about this happening again is because I don't think flank countries especially the Baltic states, you know, Poland, Romania, countries that are the most exposed and have a very real living memory of what the Soviet occupation meant, what the loss of sovereignty meant, would accept a, a gradual disentangling of the relationship between Europe and America. Uh, the United States is viewed uh, by those countries on the flank as the necessary security guarantor when it comes to their sovereignty. So I think, I think we may see change, but, but somewhere in between those two extremes. Uh, yes, you are right. There was a lot of bilateralism, I think, from uh, flank countries when it comes to their relations with the United States. Now, the question is to what extent they're willing to accept uh, the kind of federalizing impulse that, that uh, I see in Europe, you know, issuing common debt. I mean, I call this your Hamiltonian moment. You know, the United States became a federal states started moving in the direction of being, being a federal state because of that decision. Uh, you know, so much will depend on to what extent these competing interests within the EU are going to play themselves out. And then there's an economic factor. I mean, I think that the larger economies, uh, even the, some of the mid-sized economies in Europe will weather the crisis relatively well, but there are a number of countries in Europe today already uh, that are in dire economic straits. Uh, you know, the Spaniards, the Italians, the Greeks, we have, we have tremendous financial needs, and that will have to be considered against the requirements of actually resourcing the defense. And by the way, to, to kind of add insult to injury while we're talking about what COVID has done to us, I think the Chinese are projected to grow between 1.2 and 1.8% this year. 
So um, when we exit this period, and, and I'm not going to try to predict when this pandemic will end, uh, all the assumptions that we had about the relative power transitions, how quickly a given country is likely to catch up in this or that area, will be very significant. Um, and you add to this the fact that the Americans look at China today as both an economic problem set and a military problem set. And this will continue in the Biden administration. The way in which we deal with China may change in terms of the method and specific approaches, but the recognition, the kind of deep consensus that we're now looking at a country that is rapidly building its Navy. I think in terms of the absolute number of ships, the Chinese Navy, the, the PLAN is now uh, bigger than the U.S. Navy. I mean, that fleet doesn't have the capabilities that the U.S. fleet has, but it operates close to home pretty much, and it's trying to become an ocean-going Navy. Uh, you know, the fact that the Chinese in purchasing uh, power parity, uh, if you look at the size of their economy, they're probably already bigger than the U.S. economy, even if in nominal terms they're not. The question of the extent to which they can innovate, the extent to which they can use domestic market to drive their own economic growth, all these things will be preoccupying the U.S. Europe, on the other hand, in my view, is looking at China as predominantly, increasingly, yes, a, an economic challenge. Uh, the Europeans are waking up, and I think this pandemic has done a lot to awaken the Europeans to, to how China has acted in Europe in terms of, of the kind of predatory mercantilist uh, uh, practices. It wasn't just that KUKA Robotics was suddenly, you know, bought by the Chinese and the Germans woke up. I mean, the Europeans are looking at the infrastructure investment, the extent to which the Chinese are holding, uh, you know, the large equities in a number of ports and, and, and infrastructure and so forth. But the Europeans do not yet, and I don't think they want to, see China as a military problem set. In fact, my sense is that this will be a very significant challenge for the Biden administration to bring our allies in Europe closer to our optic on this. Uh, the Europeans, my sense is the Europeans don't want to get literally between the doors and the door frame on the military component uh, of that great power competition. But it's, but it's coming to Europe, it's there. China is in Europe. Uh, People's Liberation Army Navy is operating in the Med, it's getting into the Baltic, going into, into the Arctic and high north. You know, All of this is essentially happening as we speak. And uh, you've already identified uh, some of the potential and emerging uh, threats and risks, but I would like to unpack it a little bit more because, as you said, uh, we are right now in the middle of uh, reshaping the debate. There has been, to, if we are fair on the matter, there hasn't been a debate, a real serious debate about some of these issues that you've named prior to the COVID-19 uh, virus outbreak. So in fact, uh, the 5G issue, for instance, was not on the agenda in many European capitals. Um, the so-called China's soft power, um, call it whatever you like, uh, has, been, has not been an issue uh, prior to the COVID-19 virus outbreak. And there is also, of course, the military, this is the defense and the military aspect of, uh, you know, of uh, China's rise, which once again, is still not really an issue here on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and there is, of, of course, also this common understanding that on the one side, Europe wants to be this, uh, this uh, trustworthy security partner. 
uh, to the United States, but on the other side, uh, to go back to business as usual once the virus uh, outbreak is over. So to go back to business as usual with China. Um, and that is, of course, something that uh, most likely won't happen the way we would like it. Uh, now, my question to you is, um, uh, well, first and foremost, that's obviously a very, very long-term issue. Um, it's not just about the conception of the conceptual part. Uh, there will be new strategies uh, right now being in development in the European capitals. And uh, the European Union came out with this uh, strategic outlook in 2019, where China was described not just as partner or economic competitor, but also as a strategic rival, right? So do you think that this is something that is going to also emerge in the in some of the European capitals? And uh, we also are observing that there is uh, already a debate within the NATO initiated about this issue. So China was mentioned in the NATO summit in London. China is mentioned now in the NATO paper, in the report. Um, that's the one thing on the, that's the one thing I would like uh, you to address. But the other one, of course, is how will Joe Biden address the issue, uh, knowing that he is uh, following a very different approach? Is it going to be more this institutional approach that we witnessed uh, under Obama? Uh, 2.0, so basically creating alliances uh, in Europe, in Asia. So oh, is it going to be a new new kind of, of approach uh, to deal with uh, China? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, let me let me answer this by by reiterating something that we have not had involved in this discussion for a long time in the transatlantic uh, dimension. We have, we're at the tail end, in effect, at the point of the kind of end of an ideological paradigm that we uh, came out with from the end of the Cold War. You know, the end of history, globalism, uh, transnationalism, um, export-driven modernization, democracy promotion, all these things uh, that came out from what was undeniably the most spectacular uh, victory of the United States and its democratic allies, but victory that in the final analysis, when you compare it to uh, what we expected a potential, you know, final act of this great, great power competition, the Cold War might, might have been, the Soviets went away with a whimper, not with a bang. You know, the kind of terrific scenarios that we were building, all of this in effect uh, did not happen. And I think it infused us with a certain degree of, of animus and hubris. And, I, and I, I wrote at the time that one of the most dangerous moments for any great power is a moment of a great triumph that seems to have been uh, achieved, not just because uh, of, of a set of economic and military conditions, but because it validated an idea. Um, American national identity has always been this kind of connection of liberalism and nationalism, and they've always existed in tension. What happens in 1990, in my view, is this great triumph of that liberal paradigm, uh, the notion that, uh, you know, if China becomes modernized, uh, then the Chinese middle class will rise, the Chinese middle class will re you know, demand representation, political participation, China will liberalize, and we'll all live happily ever after, you know, by Chevys or Toyotas, and all this kind of nonsense. Uh, I have been arguing against that for over two decades now, for the, against that kind of par paradigm. But unfortunately, there was an incredibly powerful economic inducement 
that was built into this, this paradigm. In other words, globalization was essentially offshoring of, of US manufacturing and increasingly European manufacturing as well to China to take advantage of a very low labor cost over there at a time when AI was still in its infancy, when digital manufacturing wasn't even over the horizon. And that allowed for an ever greater profit. And what happened in the process was a whole wholesale transfer of Western technology and know-how uh, to China. And I always found that absolutely mind-boggling, and I'm not saying this lightly, because uh, I remember during the Cold War, we had COCOM restrictions that would not allow for exports of even very basic technologies to, to the Soviet Union, like you know Intel 386-based PCs, because that could be used for dual use, and et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, at the end of the Cold War, we took the jewels in the crown of American technology, alloys, processes, clean rooms, everything. We also opened up our universities to, to training Chinese uh, uh, engineers and designers and whatnot. I mean, last year, 2019, we, we had about a million foreign students in the US, 370,000 of those were Chinese, mainly STEM graduate students. And the Chinese last year were contracting directly for research in US laboratories, demanding that, that, that results be returned to them. We've given the Chinese access to every level of our society. So the spectacular rise of China is to a large extent, in my view, the creation of our policies of this globalist paradigm you know, where ideology trumped realist power considerations. And in the process, we deindustrialized uh, large sectors uh, of our economy and quite frankly, entire areas where, you know, you used to have the industrial heartland in America uh, have been radically transformed. And China grew by about 900% in just 30 years. That is unprecedented. That is a, a, a jump uh, that we cannot point to in any sort of uh, other case. But I would argue in large part because we have trained their designers, we've trained their weapons engineers, we've trained their innovators. And the reason the Chinese are maybe jumping ahead or are cheaper in some areas of 5G is because of that to a large extent. I mean, Huawei is not a Chinese company. I mean, 25 to 30% of the people who work, the Chinese meaning, you know, that the Chinese programmers are working there. These, this is essentially sucking in and buying up the talent and bringing this in. Um, and my concern is that in this environment, in this situation, where this economic balance has shifted, uh, we find ourselves in a situation now where the European market has become quite dependent on the Asian market. And so has the American market. I mean, if there's anything we learned in this pandemic, was that we were dependent on China, as were the Europeans, for the most fundamental basic supplies. I called this in one of my articles, the radical centralization of supply chains by the Chinese, which ran counter the entire theory that was you know, being debated during globalization that as the Chinese labor costs rise, there'll be further diffusion of supply chains, you know, lower cost countries like Vietnam or, or you know, India will take up the slack. Well. That didn't happen. The Chinese have effectively managed through subsidies, through uh, theft of intellectual property, uh, through various political pressures and, and, and others to create a situation where now 80% of US antibiotics come from China, just as one example, uh, where we couldn't get PPEs, we couldn't get uh, uh, protective clothing. And that radical centralization is a clear and present threat to US security. And I would argue also to European security. Uh, so I've been calling for what I what I uh, 
called in one of my articles, hard decoupling from China. I say hard because it has to be rapid and it's going to be painful. I'm not talking about a wholesale disconnecting of our economy on the contrary, but, but there has to be some critical, strategically vital change in our supply system that if they're not produced you know, in the US or in Europe, that we have access to diffused and redundant supply chains that we can draw on in the event uh, we find ourselves in, in this situation. And the reason I talk about this in the context of the pandemic, the entire European social market con contract depends on the ability of the largest economies to constantly accumulate trade surpluses in order to be able to maintain uh, uh, that arrangement. I mean, Germany is a case in point. If, if Germany and other Europeans are to do this, they need access to the Asian market. I have seen not a single case when I talk to business community in France and Germany and Britain and other places where there's any appetite for disconnecting from the Chinese market for that very reason. Uh, and also remember that the Chinese now have uh, a lot of resources, money, among others, but, but also the ability uh, to work and to influence our processes. I mean, uh, we know so little in comparison to how much we knew about the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc during the Cold War, where we trained experts who spoke the language, traveled, and maybe three, four percent of those people ended up in academia, like myself. Uh, the rest of them went into government, military, intelligence services, and so forth. Uh, we have operated for the last three decades, in my view, of the so-called globalization, um, almost like in a, in, in a daydream. We were projecting our assumptions and our values and tried to look the other way, while the Chinese, every, every year, were going to school uh, on us, so to speak. I used to go to Stanford every summer to do research at Hoover for about 12 years, and I actually watched the quality of the Chinese student cohort just incredibly improving with every single iteration. Uh, and then now we find ourselves in a situation where we do not know if the Chinese can, in fact, innovate on their own and outcompete the West, or if they're still in a position where they have to rely on our resources. Why is it critical? Because I differentiate between Russia and China, even though I call them both near-peer competitors. China, uh, Russia is a quintessentially revisionist power. Putin wants to revise the post-Cold War settlement, restore the sphere of privileged interest in Europe and along the periphery in Eurasia. And Russia is aligned with China in opposition to the United States and the, the liberal order we created internationally. I think China is in a different weight class, as they would say in boxing. Uh, China doesn't want to revise the international order. China wants to replace the international order. China wants to create a system that's built around its own power, its own institutions, and its own values. I called it, I think recently I wrote a piece for Politico, I called it the free market for unfree people. Uh, and, and the threat that this poses to uh, the entire value system uh, that the West uh, has developed over centuries uh, and, and nurtured and then projected across the international system, I think this is now at risk. Mm -hmm. You also have written recently articles about global power competition. And um, there is one thing uh, that we uh, certainly overlooked. I mean, the majority of the experts overlooked. I, for instance, have been, have been pointing to the likelihood of an emergence of systemic uh, bipolarity since 2015 when I 
observed this shift in the relations between China and Russia, for instance. Once Russia was isolated by the West, uh, it turned very much to, to, to Beijing. And uh, you also said uh, we still know uh, not enough about China, about China's intentions, about China's grand strategy, if you like, uh, as compared to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But the Russians do. The Russians actually started reorienting themselves, knowing that they have to, uh, you know, uh, navigate in the great game of geopolitics. And this was for me a clear sign that something was 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 uh, fishy. Something was happening, right? But the reality, in reality, the majority of the um, uh, transatlantic experts uh, were pointing to a multipolarity, were pointing to this kind of, uh, you know multilateralism, the primacy of um, international and regional alliances and institutions. And I would like to draw your attention to this because you've written some articles about the popularity, about the global power shift. Uh, to, to tell us a little bit more about it, how is what, what exactly your view is on that matter. Do you think that China would emerge as the second system power, as the systemic competitor, and you named already some issues, um, which also became very obvious during uh, Trump's uh, administration, Trump's mandate. Do you think that uh, China will also manage to get uh, some other countries into this uh, kind of orbit of, uh, you know, economic, trade relations, uh, call it dependencies if you like, be it loan dependencies? And what is really uh, a question, open question mark to me personally is uh, this kind of systemic the likelihood of systemic coordination between Moscow and Beijing. I'm not uh, naming it alliance, but uh, the risk of having a key systemic coordination in sectors and in fields of policies, and specifically in areas, in regions, which are very important for the transatlantic um, alliance, I think is still very much present. So what is your take on that matter? on the dragon bear. Okay, let me first kind of dispose of multilateralism arguments. Uh, I've always been skeptical about this, even though some scholars who I greatly respect use this term. Uh, to me, it's not a category that helps me organize strategy. You know, we have a multipolar system. How does this inform my analysis? So there are many uh, centers of power and uh, okay. Um, I've never thought that uh, that this could be something that we could call an end state. To me, multipolarity at best could be a transition phase. Uh, I think what is beginning to develop right now is what the United States uh, went to war over four times uh, already. Um, that is that the Chinese are bidding now for regional hegemony uh, in Asia. And in the process, uh, they're also trying to develop capabilities that will allow them to challenge the United States uh, in, on high seas. I mean, I think the immediate near term will be an attempt to push the U.S. out of West, the Western Pacific. Um, and the larger, when I, I think you're absolutely right about the Chinese and Russian alignment. That's the term I would use. And it really, there's no point of quibbling. Are they allies? Are they aligned? The enemy of, of you know, <laughs> The enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's basically what drives this conversation from the Russian perspective. 
Uh, are the Russians going into a good deal? I don't think so. I think, I think looking uh, at the size of the Russian economy uh, and the weight, the throw weight that the Chinese have, the weight class that the Chinese have, if the Russians stay in this arrangement, it's not going to end well for them in terms of developing dependencies and whatnot. But uh, what we're looking at is the risk that one power will dominate Eurasia, the Eurasian landmass. Um, what the Chinese are doing, the Chinese are quintessentially land, land power. I mean, 100%. If you, if you look at the last uh, five, 600 years, you know, ever since uh, seagoing vessels became seaworthy so that commerce uh, using maritime shipping became much less and, and, and uh, had a decisive advantage uh, over, over uh, land-based uh, transport and, and land-based supply chains, uh, the, the West, as we know it today, uh, became ascendant. I mean, uh, the, the rise of great empires in Europe were driven uh, in that vein through the supremacy, superiority of, of the maritime domain over land domain. And, you know, the, especially the, I, I like to compare sometimes the British Empire, the Brits to, to the United States. I mean, the U.S. to a large degree, if you look at, the, at it uh, geopolitically, we're a bit of a like like United Kingdom, you know, writ large on a continental scale. We're quintessentially naval power. The U.S. has actually uh, the Navy written into its constitution. Congress shall maintain the Navy. It will raise an army. So army is something that is supposed to happen sporadically. Um, we had a militia tradition, all of that. But the Navy is a, is, is a uh, constitutionally mandated military component that we have. And if you look at how we have expanded, first we dominated the Western Hemisphere you know, after the uh, expansion across the continent. And then we began to project power in both directions across the Atlantic and the Pacific. Right now, Europe is the gateway for transatlantic communities, the gateway for American power uh, into Eurasia. Uh, and uh, likewise, our alliances in the Pacific allow us to project power to the Eurasian continent uh, from that direction. Um, if the Chinese can, in fact, complete their projects, and there are different estimates of this. For example, Belt and Road is a transcontinental supply chain project that the Chinese, in my view, are trying to establish in order to create uh, an alternative to maritime supply. I mean, uh, if you think about this right now, globalization and international trade is facilitated by U.S. naval presence. Those sea lanes of communication are safe to international commerce because the U.S. Navy is patrolling the seas and, and ensuring that. If the Chinese can create a separate transcontinental supply chain, defended it with various assets from, from more conventionalists through cyber and, and, and others and space systems, and then put pressure on the United States in the maritime domain, Europe will become not no longer an entry point uh, for the transatlantic community, the gateway to, to Eurasia, if you will, but it will, it will become a tail end of the Chinese controlled supply system. Um, if you want to kind of speculate of what this order that, that, that the Chinese are trying to develop might look like, I would suggest you look at Africa. Uh, you know, debt for equity um, arrangements, dependence, increased military presence. If you look at Djibouti, this is essentially a Chinese naval base right now, uh, and power projection from there. Uh, one of the best scholars of, of China, who's, who's a, a, a friend, uh, had a brilliant comment, in my view, describing, describing the Chinese strategy. Uh, David Goldman, 
said once, and, and I think he put it in his book that just came out, China is sinomorphing the globe. It is not a power, great power kind of competition that the West is used to. It's the gradual transformation of institutions, elites, processes, values, and then in the end, creating a, a set of kind of tributary states. Uh, China is not a nation state, it's a civilization, uh, a, a, an ancient civilization actually, which is I think increasingly uh, seeing itself as both rising to the top, but also feeling great pressures, I think, uh, if it is to remain competitive. And I think that will create uh, tremendous burdens. I mean, if you, if you think, for example, Chinese uh, one-child generation, right? Um, that generation is now fully of military age. I mean, that generation has matured. Uh, China now has about 20% more males, military age males than females. So if you look at it in terms of just creating a large military force, it finds itself in, in, in a very strong position. But if you look at projections, especially for population trends in 20, 30 years going forward, in fact, you're looking at declines of, you know, 250, 300 million. So, so the Chinese are in no way secure and securely positioned just by these larger trends uh, to continue and sustain this kind of growth. And one final point, if I may, on China, you know, I've, I've always wondered at what point uh, the, the Chinese would be able to disconnect from the Western sources of expertise. We had a congressional research study that came out about, I think, a year and a half ago trying to show uh, you know, what that so-called free trade relationship looked like with China. Uh, this was not free trade. On the one hand, you had a mercantile power that was uh, exploiting its, its uh, relationship and, and the state's involvement in its economy. And on the other hand, you had countries that, that uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe because greed was masquerading as an ideology, uh, were insisting that we're still engaged in free trade. In my view, bringing, bringing China into the World Trade Organization as a developing nation was one of the gravest mistakes in U.S. Uh, policy towards, towards China and, and, and the world uh, as such. So if we are now in a situation that the Chinese can narrow uh, the capabilities differential between their systems and U.S. systems and Western systems, we may find ourselves in, in an increasingly unstable and dangerous situation. Remember, we, we are looking at a country that's 1.4 billion people. It's governed by about 90 million strong Communist Party and in effect by the Politburo and the inner circle of power. Uh, and, and that makes uh, any sort of comparisons uh, to what we were hoping China would become to be utterly naive. In fact, uh, I would be very hard pressed to find cases uh, where a rapid economic su success, rapid modernization does not create assertive nationalism rather than liberal democracy. When I, when I would have these arguments with colleagues in the 90s and in the 2000s, they would always bring out the examples of South Korea, of Japan, you know, places like that. And I always replied that these are not accurate comparisons. I mean, uh, Japan and South Korea depend on the United States for their security. And that means that values and interests of the United States have always been important. Um, the real test cases were Russia and China and see how that has turned out. And maybe there will be another case uh, to look at and to observe, at least in the upcoming decade, uh, which is India, because India is a nuclear power. India has the scale. 
even if it doesn't have the, this kind of economic development for now, it is projected to become a third economic power in the world in the next 10 to 15 years. And um, India has this um, peculiar South Asian security dilemma with not one, but two direct neighbors. So uh, do you think that probably India would be the key to this kind of reconfiguration of global supplies along Anglosphere or Anglo-Saxon, if you like, rule of law based uh, kind of alliances and partnerships, but also, uh, you know, can become part of something bigger, of something kind of a, you know, regional, regional alliance uh, to, uh, you know, to, to create counterweight to China's rise uh, in, uh, in Asia. And also because you mentioned China is this kind of heartland power. Um, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, the, the geopolitical theories of the 19th century and how much they are relevant for the 21st century, I think that China is even uh, what is, might become more dangerous than that is uh, that China seeks to become rimland and heartland power. It seeks this unique position to create uh, alternative uh, connectivities, uh, not just uh, in the heartland, in Eurasian, in the great Eurasian space, but now also along the maritime routes, which of course is, for instance, this example with this, uh, you know, string of pearls, um, you know, bypassing, uh, bypassing uh, India. So this creates a new uh, geostrategic environment for India and India, I think, will no longer um, can afford no longer this luxury of being non-alignment country, such was, as was the case uh, during the Cold War. So what is your take? Uh, is uh, India going to play a major role in the, what I call the Indo-Pacific decade of uh, global affairs? Without a doubt, the question is in what, in what direction the situation will evolve. A lot of people who write on Asia <clears throat> talk about the quartet rather than the troika. Um, I did a piece recently for, for Heritage where I focused really on the troika uh, rather than, than the quartet because I think India by the very size and, and a sense of vulnerability also vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, some of it is purely geographic uh, and also in terms of what capabilities it can bring to the table. I think India, while it is leaning definitely towards the West, will, will not likely make an unequivocal commitment of the same kind that, say, Japan does. Japan cannot live uh, in the Chinese neighborhood with the U.S. power being absent. I mean, that puts it in an impossible situation. I think the same is true about the Australians, New Zealand, South Koreans. The Chinese are, are putting tremendous pressure now on Hong Kong. I think that that is largely uh, a done deal. And, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan is likely next on the agenda. The militarization of the South China Sea is a very serious problem. Uh, I actually had a very interesting experience once when I was sitting in a, in a conference uh, with some Chinese military um, here in Europe, uh, just to understand the mindset. And one of those officers said, no, look, you." We are a land power. We don't think about water the, the way you think about it. It was kind of in halting English, so, so it was interesting to, to listen to this as well. And you know, to us, water is land. If we draw a line in the water, we're talking about South, South China Sea issues. 
the militarization of the islands, then it's our land. Then we look at it as an integral part of the state. Uh, it was very striking, especially if you were looking at the reactions from the Aussies in the room or Canadians or Americans kind of looking at this. I think, I think we have in front of us the greatest challenge of getting to a sense of shared consensus on China with our European friends in particular. Uh, and I think this can be, uh, this can happen if we start talking very frankly about what the world order that no longer rests on the Western value set would look like. Um, we also have a very serious problem uh, in terms how polarized our own societies have become. Because if you took, if you took European power and American power, whether it's economic or population, whatever, and combined that, I would sleep very soundly. I wouldn't worry, wouldn't be having this conversation. The problem is, as you've indicated, Velina, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, that Europe is fragmented, Europe is fractured. Uh, there's an ongoing debate within the EU. Uh, you just went through a round of, of uh, very serious negotiations with the Hungarians and the Poles, you know, about uh, the rule of law and connection to, to spending and all of that. Uh, we just had an election in the United States that largely showed us pretty much cleaved down the middle. I think the, the greatest challenge for the Biden administration will be, quite frankly, domestic to, to bring back uh, a sense of national purpose. Um, and and that, that indicator is, is almost, it's not only numerical, if you look at the numbers of people that voted for, for President Trump and the number of people that voted for Vice President Biden, but it's also, for the first time in my life, I actually see uh, the kind of almost geographic cleavages in, in the country. So that if you, if you go to any of the two coastal corridors, if you go to San Francisco or you go to Washington, you know, the West Coast is predominantly now where the digital economy uh, is operating. The East Coast is mainly where the, where the new finance uh, happens. And you know, plus a few large cities uh, in the heartland, but but it's mainly mainly in the in the uh, in the corridors. Then you see a very different ideological concept uh, of um, of what the politics should look like, what the values should look like. Uh, it's what I call a transnationalist mindset. Most of the digital companies are transnational companies. If you go into the heartland, it's it's very much. Uh, the community-based kind of people from there, the networks of regional relationships uh, and, and, and community relationships. And what's really interesting is that for the first time in my life, and uh, a colleague observed the other day that for the first time probably of this, since the Civil War, we have, we have geographic divisions and ideological divisions kind of coalesce. So the task for the administration coming in in January will be to do whatever is possible to narrow that gap and bring people uh, back together. And, and I think the same challenge will be uh, for, for the major European leaders as well. You know, Germany's task in driving the process of reconciling these differences. Because in the final analysis, the fracturing of the European Union, the inability of Europe to operate uh, in, as, as, a, as, as at least an economic union, if not more, will be a, a, an net loss for everybody and for all of us. And the last point I would like to make, Belina, if I may, I cannot underscore more strongly how important it is that Europe needs to rebuild its militaries. Um, it needs to have, it's not about percentages of, of spending on defense. 
you know, 2%, 3%, 6%, 1%. All these are important targets because they show commitments made by democratic countries. So if you commit to spend two on defense, you should stand by that commitment. So that aside, there's a political dimension to it. But if you spend, if you spend all of your resources on, I don't know, you know, building infrastructure, but not having capable, trained, exercised military, uh, you know, if your Air Force can only fly in circles over your capital, it's non-deployable. Uh, it's not really a, an Air Force that can be used. It's a flight club. You know, they've got nice uniforms and they, and they parade, but they're not able to perform the tasks that need to, need to happen. I think the Biden administration, because it, is, it will be perceived in Europe, at least initially, you know, there's this good feeling kind of period that's happening uh, as something that the Europeans largely preferred in the majority, I think, uh, in terms of how they look at liberal internationalism, uh, found themselves much more closely to uh, the Biden mindset than to the Trump mindset, then that should give them the opportunity to actually step up on these hard power issues. And I think if, if we don't hang together in that sense, we're gonna hang separately. If, if European deterrence is not sufficiently resourced to hold against Russian blackmail, with U.S. strategic enablers, with U.S. nuclear guarantees, high-end systems, absolutely. Where they're, where they're with you, we're allies. But, but the heavy lifting on a number in, across many domains of European defense has to be done from the European side. And in that case, we can then both deal as a larger transatlantic community with the Russian and Chinese threat. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I see that we are unfortunately running out of time, but I had a really three additional very short questions uh, that you just can answer with yes and no because i think okay. they're very relevant for the discussion the one is of course um uh, the issue with the military capabilities so obviously regional conflicts uh, have moved to the southern and the eastern neighborhood of uh, europe uh, and uh, there need there, there, is, uh, there is this need to be prepared and to intervene and be involved, which uh, cannot uh, you know, happen only and solely with American help. Uh, so, of course, I mean the Libyan conflict, also uh, Eastern Europe uh, with all the frozen and hot conflicts there. Um, and one uh, question that I have related to it is, of course, the uh, very, very different and more assertive role of Turkey. Now that Turkey is also having issues with United States, my question to you is, do you think that Joe Biden will manage to settle the issue um, with Turkey? Turkey is still a geopolitically important actor for the United States and for NATO. Uh, but on the other side, it's becoming a problem and becoming a security uh, problem for Europe. So what is your take on that? You can answer very shortly what your expectation is. And then my other question is related to the long-term um, picture, to the long-term strategic foresight. And that is, do you think that we are going to witness more um, kind of violent decoupling in the next four or five years, let's say four years under Joe Biden? Or is it be a more like a peaceful coexistence between two systems with their networks, with their supply chains, with their regional partners, specifically with the middle partners trying to navigate between the two poles without taking sides, more or less? On the first question, I will say very quickly, I'm sure Joe Biden will try. And I'll leave it at that when it comes to Turkey. 
Uh, Turkey is a huge and a very complex conversation, and I'll be happy to engage with you again. But I, I think if you if you consider the fact that I have to go to a meeting in just a few minutes and we have only a few minutes, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I'm sure they will try, and it's not going to be uh, a very easy kind of uh, solution. Uh, on the larger question, whether we can have peaceful coexistence and states kind of navigating, well, first of all, it depends on, on which theater. Uh, in critical areas where you have, for example, a situation where uh, for Australia, China was a very important trading partner, but, it, but for Australia, the U.S. is a critical security uh, provider. Uh, there is no middle ground. You have to, you will have to choose sides and you will have to choose sides uh, the same way, I think, for, for other key countries, simply because, not, not because the Americans are pressuring you or the Chinese are pressuring you. This is just the dynamic of what's unfolding before us. You have a, a, an assertive rising power that's challenging the established uh, regional order in the Pacific right now, and it's increasingly penetrating into Europe. So uh, what worries me the most is the risk of conflict. We have we have not even touched on questions such as Iran. I mean, the Biden administration, in my view, will have very little time to deal with the nuclear question when it comes to Iran. The Iranians uh, have been making unequivocal statements that if there is no uh, kind of re-engagement, you know, on the deal that they're going to move and move very rapidly uh, to start enriching in ways uh, that, that we uh, would not be able to tolerate or accept. And especially, you know, if you look at how Israel would, would likely react to that. So there's one crisis in the making right there if we don't get out the door uh, immediately. Uh, and, and other issues that we have, you mentioned the Middle East, you know, Turkey is a critical uh, kind of doorway when it comes to European immigration, which gives Turkey a lot of leverage in European politics and, and in that engagement. Uh, in other words, my, my fear and my concern is that what this pandemic has done on top of everything else, it has shortened the timelines. So uh, the Biden administration, I'm speculating here, but just looking at the landscape, I think it will literally have to hit the ground running when it comes to foreign policy. Um, I think it will have some advantages, you know, the goodwill in, in Europe that you've been talking about will be there, but the problems will not go away. And let me stop here. And I suggest that we really try to continue this uh, conversation in the new year because there have been also questions coming uh, regarding regional alliances and TTIP and TPP. So there are a lot of more questions uh, also from the audience. But due to lack of time, uh, I offer you uh, the opportunity to address these issues in another conversation in the new year. Uh, obviously, there will be exciting and very challenging times ahead of us. But um, on the other side, uh, um, we obviously are prepared for this debate. And uh, I wish you, of course, uh, to stay safe and sound to um, have a really, really uh, peaceful uh, Christmas festivities. And thank I really you, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this conversation, very important conversation. We need more of this kind of conversations here in Europe, because I think that uh, this is the way how we can address and deal with the issues that really matter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Felina. And it's been an honor to speak uh, with you and your audience. And Godspeed on the good work that AIES is doing. You, you're a very important part of the European conversation on security. Thank you. Have a wonderful Christmas. God bless. Take care. Thank you. You too.